Good morning and happy Resurrection Sunday. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we gather this morning in spirit to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to celebrate his victory over the grave. We recognize that apart from his resurrection, we are without hope and are of all men most to be pitied. We recognize that if he remained in the grave, we would have no life and no hope. We would be without you in this world. And so we praise you for bringing him forth from the grave. And we want this morning to bow before him, to worship him as the only true God. We ask that you would send forth your spirit to open the eyes of our hearts and to point us towards Christ and empower us with his spirit. We ask that you would give us the power that we need to walk in all righteousness and holiness that you would give us the power to love one another as Christ did, who laid down his life for those he came to save, who submitted himself to you, his Father, even unto death, death on a cross. And we praise you, Lord, that his death is sufficient to cover our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We ask that you would give us the power that we need to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Today we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, not with our usual cantata, not with our usual church brunch, but today we celebrate it separated in a time of worldwide pandemic. We know that God has good purposes for this and he has good plans for his people in and through this. The elders have now canceled all church activities and gatherings through April 30th. That means that our April 26th quarterly congregational meeting will not be held as scheduled. If a future date is possible for that meeting, we'll announce it with at least two weeks notice. As you know, the Kidder twins arrived a little more than a week ago. And so as planned, starting tomorrow, Pastor Jeremy will be on vacation from his normal work. That'll allow him to devote himself to caring for the twins and Serena and the other kids. Verity and Yael are still in the NICU, and on Thursday they found out that Yael has a bacterial infection. So pray for their health and for the kidders as they bounce back and forth from the hospital on top of the isolation that we're all dealing with. There are several other announcements that you can read about in the bulletin, and you can download that bulletin from the website in the same place as this sermon. Now let's give our attention to Pastor Jeremy as we continue in the book of Ephesians. Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I'd like to... Uh, offer you a hearty Resurrection Sunday welcome. Um, it is a joy to serve a risen Savior. He did not stay in the grave, but he rose victorious from the tomb. Now this morning we're going to continue and complete our study in the first section of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's first walk, walking in a worthy manner. And I think our study, this, this worthy walk, ties directly into the resurrection. As I considered whether to continue in our study in Ephesians or to do a separate text, I became more and more convinced of the appropriateness of our study. 
While you turn to Ephesians 4, I want, I want you to hear what Paul says in Ephesians 5 to husbands. In Paul's instructions to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now there's a the reference to the cross, to his death. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now get that. According to Ephesians 5, Christ died on the cross to sanctify the church. That doesn't say it's the only reason he died. But so often we only consider Christ's death on the cross in regards to our forgiveness, the atonement of our sins. And praise the Lord, hallelujah, that is absolutely true. He accomplished our justification on the cross. But that glorious reality sometimes in our thinking can eclipse and completely remove any other understandings of what Christ did on the cross. And so our study this morning on how the church grows and builds itself up in love, how we are sanctified, is directly tied to the cross work, the death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Christ died. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. So what we're studying this morning, completing this section on church growth, church sanctification, this is why Christ died. This is the reward of his suffering. He has been exalted in the resurrection to be head over all things. And this morning we will see how Christ functions as head over his church. So please don't see our sanctification, our growing as a church, as somehow disconnected from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is entirely connected. Christ went to the cross and died that he might sanctify us, that he might present us pure and holy. And he was raised and he was exalted and he was placed his head over all things so that he might be in and through and rule all things. And that begins with the church. So it is entirely fitting and appropriate to study how that comes into effect, how it is that the church more and more functions as the faithful body of our exalted head. So with that said, I would like to read the passage that we are studying. This is our fourth and final week in this section, Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. We'll have a word of prayer and we will begin. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, 
joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Lord God, now as we turn to study your word, I pray that you'd give the increase, that the risen Lord would receive the reward for which he died, that you would sanctify your bride in truth. Your word is truth that we would become more like Jesus, that the body would fall into conformity with its head. For your glory and our joy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now this morning, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 16 of Ephesians chapter 4. Now let's remind you of where we've come. In our first study, we considered that Paul sets this section apart with the title, Walk in a Worthy Manner. We saw that in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And we discussed how that notion of worthy is not deserving, but fitting, corresponding, an appropriate walk because of all that has been done on our behalf and for us and to us. There is a fitting and corresponding way for us to walk. That notion of walk is daily living and conduct. And then we saw that in Paul's thinking, what it means to walk in a consistent or corresponding way to our call is fundamentally to walk in unity and to walk in maturity. It's a corporate walk. He's talking to the church and the church needs to walk together, unified, that's, that's, that's what's fitting. It's fitting because we've been made into a new man. We've been fashioned into one holy temple. The dividing wall has been taken down. And so therefore, it's only fitting for us to live that way. And if we break back up into our factions and sub-tribes, we are trying to erase or undo what has been done. No, we need, we need to live unified. But we also need to mature. We need to grow. This temple is being built up. This body needs to become full grown. And starting in verse 7, Paul shifts to that picture of growth, development, and maturity. And we saw that to aid that growth, grace, gifts of grace were given to every believer. Every believer has been gifted, equipped with gifts of grace to serve this grand project of the building up of the body of Christ. And it's tied with our Lord's ascension. So he's raised from the grave triumphant. He ascends victorious and the victorious king gives out gifts to his subjects. So even our very gifts of grace are tied to the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord. Only because he triumphed over death and was raised victorious, do we have these gifts to do this work? So Easter makes it possible for us to do the work of ministry, which is what we looked at last week, that the, the gifts are also given not just to each individual Christian, but then gifted ministers are given to the body. There's a double gifting. First, a gifting that everyone receives of gifts of grace, and then a gifting of gifted leaders and ministers given to the whole body. And those gifted leaders are given not to do the work of ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. This is what we looked at last time. So the task before us, before each and every one of us, is the work of ministry, which Paul then redefines in verse 12, the building up of the body of Christ. And he's using a metaphor of a body and a head. The head is perfect, mature, glorious, wise, powerful. The body needs to come into conformity with the head. The body needs to grow up, and not be atrophied and weak. So that's the work of ministry. Today we're actually going to see how that work takes place. We're going to look at biblical church growth. And by growth, you could think of sanctification or maturity. Oftentimes, I'll see books on shelves about how to make your church grow. And what's usually meant by church growth is growth in numbers, growth in popularity, growth in cultural awareness. That's not what Paul has in mind. Biblical church growth is maturity, 
deepening the faith. It's, it's not terribly difficult in our country to have a very big, very broad, very shallow church. Uh, and the skill set needed to do that is very different than the skill set called upon biblically for church leaders. And the measurement and standard of that type of growth is very different than the measurement and standard that we're going to see this morning of how Paul measures church growth. So we're going to look at biblical church growth. We're going to look at it in two points. We're going to first see a picture, the hallmarks of immaturity. Paul's going to tell us what he doesn't want us to be or what he wants us to no longer be in contrast to what he wants us to be. And so both negatively and positively, we're going to see what it means to be mature and to grow. Okay? So starting in verse 14, in the negative picture, we're going to see the hallmarks of immaturity. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Side note, you're probably aware that it is raining on the roof of my shed. I trust the Lord will give more grace. We will press on. I hope it does not prove to be too much of a distraction. So, verse 14, the hallmarks of immaturity. We're going to see this in three points. First, we see it in the phrase that we no longer be children. Now, the Bible can commend childlike attitudes. Childlike faith is very commendable, not childish faith. If you remember from our study of Luke 18, but childlike faith, a faith that simply believes what Father says without question. A faith that acts on Father's commands without question. A faith that doesn't demand you have to explain it to me first. A childlike faith is quite commendable. But in other respects, we are not to remain children. We aren't to remain baby Christians for all of our life. Paul is very concerned that we press on from new birth to growth. And so he says we are to no longer be children. And the picture here of children is we're no longer to be underdeveloped. That's your blank, underdeveloped. I, my wife just gave birth to twin children. And the great concern and all of the attention of the nurses and doctors in the NICU is that they not remain at their birth weight, but that they grow, that they're able to take in and digest food so that it can go out to their members and their legs and their arms. They will not be able to come home from the NICU until they're able to eat a certain volume of food, till they've added on weight, till they're, in other words, demonstrating that they are growing, that they are headed in a direction and a trajectory towards growth. And if the doctors and nurses were to conclude that they are not growing, they're not developing. That would be a sign that something is critically wrong and they would remain in the NICU. So this is something that I'm very much aware of. Newborn babies are wonderful and they're cuddly and they're snuggly. They need to grow. If you've got a 10-year-old baby, something is terribly wrong. And yet in the church... Oftentimes, that can be exactly what happens. You can have people who've been walking with God for 10, 20 years with very little growth. And so a hallmark of immaturity is remaining as a child in the faith. Yes, we're born again. We're new in Christ. And then we are to grow. Then we are to mature. This is why the Lord died, that he might sanctify his bride. So the first hallmark is that we remain as children, underdeveloped. And this picture of, of childlikeness or, or childliness is developed in Hebrews 5. Listen to this description, this rebuke from the author of Hebrews. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since she is a child. Now, in that context, being a child is not commendable. 
You, you were born again. You became children. You ought to have grown up by now. And the, and the evidences of that childliness is seen in the inability for solid food, which is deeper teaching, and the lack of familiarity and the lack of skill with the Word of God. So it's, it's atrophy. It's underdevelopedness. A lack of growth. That's the first symptom or hallmark of immaturity. Next, we see it in the phrase, tossed to and fro by waves. And your blank here is unstable. So the first is undeveloped. The second, unstable. If you've ever looked at a lake or the sea, when there are white caps, when there are waves, you can see how it batters and tosses things around. I remember seeing a styrofoam McDonald's cup in a lake near where I grew up just being battered around by the waves as a child. I don't know why that image stuck in my mind, but it has. And so this is just a picture of instability. Any wave can knock this unstable person in any direction. There's no ballast. There's no hull. There's no keel holding the vessel stable and solid. Rather, it's knocked about. Tossed to and fro by the waves. And that picture of instability, this type of language, is exactly how the Apostle James uses this same imagery. Listen to James 1, 6-7. Speaking of a person asking of God in faith. He says, Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord since he is a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. Now there the imagery is slightly shifted. He's actually likening the man to the wave itself, whereas here the wave is, is acting upon a, another object. But the picture of instability comes through clearly. Inconsistency. This, this is a, a person who may be doing well in one minute and flat on their face in the next. This is a person who um, may, may one day have zeal and passion and another day going in a different direction, overcome by doubts. This is, this is someone who, depending on the feelings, depending on how things are going, depending on what others are saying to them, affects their spiritual life radically. They're completely unstable. Or to put it positively, one of the hallmarks of maturity is a stability of faith, a depth of faith, a rootedness. I'll switch the imagery now to, to agriculture. It holds the tree in place even when the winds or the waves, now to mix metaphors, uh, come upon it. Like a house built upon a rock that when the storm comes, stands. Or like a child who has learned to walk enough that they're not falling down constantly. Our faith needs to mature and grow so that when waves come, waves that are trials, waves of different teachings, waves of all sorts of things that could knock us about, we stand firm. We hold fast. That picture of solidness, stability, is picked up a little later in Ephesians. Listen to chapter 6, where Paul calls upon them to put on the armor of God. Listen to this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So where Paul's ending this epistle, having equipped us, is a stability of faith that enables us to stand firm. What we're to no longer be like is unstable, not to and fro by every wave. Okay? He moves on then to describe this a third way, third picture or hallmark of immaturity not just underdeveloped not just unstable but point c carried about by every wind of doctrine and here it's unprotected 
unprotected. The immature in faith are easily taken captive. They're vulnerable. They're vulnerable to deception. They're vulnerable to being led away, carried about by every wind of doctrine. You don't have to be a Christian long to realize that every year or so, some new novel teaching, some book comes out and takes the Christian world by storm. Just in my lifetime as a Christian, I saw all the hoopla about the prayer of Jabez and then the whole heavenly tourism business. And this is just things that aren't even like, I don't want to say not dangerous, but things that are not fundamentally heresy or false teaching. Things that are just simply the wrong emphasis. But, but my goodness, the church will eat it up or whether it's the 40 days of purpose, new, new things come it, Among the immature church, there's a constant longing for some new lo- novel teaching. It's like we're waiting for the next thing to come along to get excited about. It, it, if something's new and hasn't been taught before in the church for 2,000 years, may I suggest to you, we have a certain amount of healthy skepticism and caution. And if you broaden this out further, you and I both know that every year around Christmas time and around Easter, there's new History Channel programs about the real historical Jesus or the Gospel of Thomas or whatever. There's no shortage of novel, new teachings that come along that sweep along many, many would be followers of Christ whether it's denials of the doctrine of hell that came out a few years ago, Rob Bell being one of them. We could go on and on and on talking about novel teachings, doctrine that have carried along thousands. How about the new discovery within the church that we've gotten our sexual ethics entirely wrong for the last 2,000 years? And suddenly, just when the culture made this discovery, Amazingly, we in the church discovered we've had it wrong as well. I I could go on and on and on and on. And I'm sure many who buy into these things, buy into them because they've never been born again. They, They don't have the author of the Bible inside of them, but some may be swept away by these things due to their immaturity. They, They may in fact be believers so weak so feeble, so atrophied, so unstable, that in their unprotected state, they're taken captive and pulled along by such false teaching. And we know that these, these novel doctrines don't just spring up randomly. We have an adversary. We have an enemy. And so we are told that they, these teachings come from human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. There's a certain cleverness behind these things. I remember I was reading uh, Rob Bell's Velvet Elvis, and one of the things that frustrated me so immensely was how cleverly it was argued. Um, Rob Bell wouldn't come out and actually deny key doctrines. He'd just question them. I'm not saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead. In one chapter he said, but if we discovered his body somewhere, would that really shake up your faith? Yes. Yes, it would, Rob. Technically, he didn't say Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He just cleverly asked a question. That's exactly also how the serpent challenged Eve in the garden, by the way. Did God say? There's a shrewdness to these things. There's a craftiness to these things. And so we have a real enemy And there is real winds of doctrine coming along, if at all possible, to to lead astray God's elect. And and we need to grow so so that we are protected, so that we're stable, and so that we're developed. This craftiness is precisely the opposite of how Paul conducts his ministry. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 1-2. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience 
in the sight of God. I love, I love that language. By open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. We don't tamper with the word of God. And one of the reasons why in this church we spend so much time in teaching is, and I use this metaphor regularly, I feel the need to, to show my math, to sh not just say what I believe the text means, but why, so that everyone listening can judge for themselves, can evaluate, is my reasoning sound? Or am I tampering with the text? Am I twisting the text? Am I giving an open declaration of the truth? Or am I putting my spin on it? What I think the Bible says doesn't matter. What matters is what the Bible says. And, and if I am not handling the truth properly, ignore what I'm saying. Now, my goal and the goal of, of all faithful ministry is what Paul says here, not to tamper with the word of God, but open statement of the truth, not with cunning and craftiness. But these winds of doctrine that come along again and again, and they will continue to come along till the Lord returns, they're rooted in human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, which are the very things in chapter 6 of Ephesians Paul warns us we're up against. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So to summarize this first point of what immaturity looks like, it's a faith and a believer who is completely underdeveloped in atrophy. They're like a child. And in this sense, childlikeness is not a good thing. Children are not very discerning. Children have to be told not to take candy from strangers. They're also unstable. Um, they, they hear something, they read something, they get, they get knocked around. They get confused. Well, this teacher says this, this teacher says this, this teacher says this. What do I believe? You got to read the Bible yourself. You got to pray yourself. You've got to ask for wisdom. You got to sort through these things. You need to know why you believe what you believe. I'm, I'm not an authority when you stand before God on the day of judgment, you, you can't say, well, Pastor Jeremy said, what I say is only useful to you insofar as you are persuaded, you see it in the text, you understand God's word better. And then you will have the stability, not of my teaching, but of the word of God. And then you will be protected from being easily ensnared and led away by every wind of doctrine. Because you can again and again, as the author of Hebrews in chapter 5 says, test what is said with skill in the word to determine truth from error, good from evil. Listen to this. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. No one can be mature for you. This is something you have to do for yourself. Now, I can help equip. The elders can help equip you, strengthen, train you. You have to do the maturing for you. And I have to do the maturing for me and so on. So that is the hallmarks of immaturity. A lack of development, instability, and unprotected. Well, now let's move on to how to leave that state and how to grow. The biblical process of growth. And again, there's, there's no shortage of books on how to mature in the Christian faith. And one of the great helps I got was from one of my professors, Stuart Scott. He, uh, he's the author of The Exemplary Husband. And we, we had a class, and what he was teaching in the class was the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of growth and maturity. And, and he was going through various false uh, false views of sanctification and he paused and said let me just tell you the simplest way to discern error in this regard um, any model that, that teaches how to grow as a christian that doesn't center itself around the word of god the cross work of christ and repentance and faith is wrong and that's profoundly true any attempt model understanding of Christian growth that models itself on anything other than dependency on the word of God and the spirit of God 
constantly looking to the, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our own need to put off and to put on, to, to, to put off the old man and sinful behavior, to repent and to in faith again and again trust anew and anew God's word it is, is not God's model for sanctification. Now, it'll always be tempting to say, hey, here's the one key critical thing you are missing. That's why you never matured and grew. Your inner spirit was being wounded. Your love tank was not being filled. Um, you weren't praying the prayer of Jabez, whatever. And we can go, oh, it's not that I'm immature and it's not that I'm spiritually lazy. I just didn't know the prayer of Jabez. That's not ever going to be it. And what we're going to see here in the biblical process of growth, it, it's, it's straightforward. It's hard work. It's why we needed these gifts. It's why we needed this equipping. It's why we needed the trainers. But it's, it's straightforward. It's not complicated. It just takes love and unity and work and faith and perseverance. But let's dive in. Here, this is how the job gets done. Verse 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Man, there's so much to that passage. Okay, we're going to look at this now in four points. First, God's given process. God's given process. And it's straightforward and simple. Speaking the truth in love. As opposed to being a child, as opposed to being tossed about by waves, as opposed to being carried about by every wind of doctrine, rather, instead of that, Paul says, speak the truth in love. I, I just love that. Speak the truth in love. How does the body grow? It speaks the truth in love. See, it's, it's not complicated. Um, now, there's a lot of assumptions built into that. We're going to look at that carefully. But the, the body needs to speak to itself in love. And again, this is why you need a church. This is why I need a church. Because these are things we do to each other. This is where we reach the limitations of the internet and sermon audio. Because we need to be speaking the truth and love to each other. These are the challenges our, our current social distancing lay upon us because we still desperately need to be speaking the truth and love to each other and have the truth spoken in love to ourselves by others. And praise God for the various means we have and for your creativity in, in, in finding ways to safely do that. But we speak the truth and love. Now notice the two elements here. We've got to speak. It's the first thing. And for some of you, that's going to be the hardest part. It's just speaking. We need to speak the truth. We need to speak in love. So let's, let's just look at that. I think it's interesting um, that God's tool for growth is his children's speaking. And I'll remind you that the God we serve is a talking God. Right out of the gate in the book of Genesis, Moses highlights this reality. It's, it's easy to miss, but when God creates the heavens and the earth... Moses could just tell us God made the heavens and the earth. But he does more than that. He tells us how God made the heavens and the earth. And what we learn is God did not make the heavens and the earth by performing the ritual, casting the spell, waving his wand. What mechanism, what tool did God use to create the heavens and the earth and all that is? And what we learn is he spoke. His word has power. His word brings things into being. And not only did God's word bring the universe into being, but how does God birth his children? According to James, you and I are born, brought forth by the living and abiding word of God. So God's word, his speech is powerful. It creates all things. And then when he comes to create his people, the word of God creates the people of God. How do the people of God grow? They grow by listening and attending to his word. Well, how does the body of Christ grow? God's people imitating their father, they too speak. When they speak the truth 
in love, that has power. Power to grow, power to build up. If we can speak the truth, and we can speak in love, the body can grow. It's wonderful. And in that sense, we simply are following the model of our Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ, who spoke nothing but truth. Christ was a teacher and a preacher and a prophet, and he spoke God's word to God's people. In Luke 5, the people were listening to the word of God. And so always and everywhere, God's word spoken by his prophets and his people is what God uses to create, cultivate, and build up life. And so when it comes to the church growing, what, what, what needs to be done? What program do we need? We need to speak the truth in love to each other. Now notice we're not, we're not speaking um, pop psychology, Dr. Phil, Oprah. We're speaking the truth, which is why we need to grow into the knowledge of the word. You're in my opinions. Our thoughts, those can be interesting. They're not going to sanctify and build up the church. Only the truth. And this is nothing new. In John 17, 17, Jesus praying to his Father, says, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Build them up in truth. Your word is truth. Or the Awana verse that I'm sure most of us have memorized, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now pause and think about that. That's a momentous statement. Paul has just told Timothy that if he will hold on to the scripture, if he will be skilled with the scripture. The scripture gives him everything he needs. I'm just going to read the end of that sentence. Equipped for every good work. Every good work you or I are ever to be called upon to do, we will find our sufficiency in God's word. And God's word, we get some of the uses of God's word, of this truth. Scripture is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, and for teaching. So we speak the truth in love, and sometimes we speak the truth in love to teach. And sometimes we speak the truth in love to reprove and to rebuke and to correct. Sometimes we speak the truth in love to train in righteousness. Sometimes we speak the truth in love to comfort and console. Sometimes we speak the truth in love to encourage. And sometimes we speak the truth in love to evangelize and witness to our the lost. But however it's done, the most powerful thing we can ever do is speak the truth. And it matters that we're speaking the truth. This is why Paul's concern for doctrinal purity is, is so paramount. Because if we're speaking something other than the truth, we're not speaking with power. And again, I'll remind you, this is why unity and maturity need to come together. Unity without truth you can build unity without truth. You can have a really big, shallow ministry. You can have an interfaith movement. We've just set the truth aside. You can also sometimes have people who are doctrinally very precise, and you almost get the impression they're the only people who've ever figured this out. And what was called for and what walking worthy is, is a unified church that's maturing. That, that's the challenge, unity with truth. And so notice Paul's vision of unity does not sideline the truth in any way or shape. In fact, it's our adherence to the truth that protects us from being swept away by the wind and the waves. So here we have to speak the truth but we also need to speak it in love. Now, this is the other half. This is where simply knowing things isn't good enough. Um, I, 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 my own struggle has been, especially as an unbeliever and even as a believer, is, is, well, I'm right, so it doesn't matter how I say it. That can be the temptation for me, is to think I'm right, so maybe I'm being a little sharp or harsh. But I'm right. That's not what's called for her either. That's not going to build the body up. 
And so it's good to remember 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Even if I'm quoting the Greek New Testament, even if I'm quoting the scripture itself, if I speak and I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Again, this is going to be the challenge for us. I I tend to think uh, often we can err or overemphasize or or be out of balance. That's probably a better picture. The problem isn't too much truth or too much love. The problem really comes in the lack of the other when people have things out of balance. And the problem can be um, a robust understanding of truth but an atrophied sense of love. And that can lead to um, self-righteousness. It can lead to Pharisaism. It can lead to uh, ugly things. There can also be uh, such an emphasis on love that it's not informed by truth. And when when love is not informed by truth, love can become misshapen. Because our world thinks many things are love that aren't love. Absolute, unconditional acceptance and tolerance, for instance. Our culture thinks is love. And sometimes in the very name of love, we will refrain from doing things that are right and biblical, addressing sin, um, speaking rightly about what is true and right. Many, for the name of love, tolerate, accept, celebrate all measures of sexual sin in our cultures today. And the challenge is to get truth and love together you ask, well, which one's more important? Okay, which, which wing of the plane is more important? Which blade of the scissors is more important? But together, the truth and love, well, that's powerful. So all of these gifts of ministry, gifts of grace given to the body, are set about to enable us to speak the truth and love to each other in the various contexts that we have. And again, there's, there's all sorts of contexts that the truth is spoken in love. Whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you're a friend offering counsel, whether you're encouraging a discouraged believer, whether you're having to bring correction, you're speaking the truth in love. Whether you're witnessing to your neighbor, you're speaking the truth in love. That's, that's what it comes down to. That's how the church grows. That's how we become mature. We speak the truth in love. I love it. It's straightforward. But it's challenging because oftentimes we get intimidated and we don't want to speak. We keep our mouths shut. Like our Father, when we speak the truth, when our words really are simply the reiteration of His words, when our speech falls in lines with His speech, there is power there. As God's Spirit applies His word so that Paul and and 2 Corinthians can speak of evangelism this way. And this is, this is stunning language. Listen to this. In 2 Corinthians 5, when we are rightly speaking the gospel, when God's word is coming out of our mouth, when we're doing it in love, listen to this. Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Paul says that when he speaks the gospel to others and does it rightly, God himself is making his appeal through him. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Likewise, Paul can speak of his teaching and say, you received my word, not as the word of man, but as the word of God. When when what we're speaking is truth and we're doing it in love, it is powerful. Not because our particular words are powerful, but because we're speaking God's words. And his word is power. So how does the church grow? The church's members speak the word of God. They speak truth to each other in love. In the myriad of contexts that is sent. In, in, in various ways. And don't think this is just always some big lesson. It can just be a timely sentence or encouragement. But it's got to start with our knowledge of the truth. We've got to know what the true and right and good thing to say in a context is, which drives us back again and again and again to study the word. 
What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about that? What biblical encouragement or instruction or correction can I give to this person in this circumstance? Well, what does God's word say? Let me go back again and again and again and again. And in that sense, books and tools are useful to the degree that they help you understand. Well, this is what the Bible says about anger. This is what the Bible says about sorrow. This is what the Bible says about anxiety. So now we can be better equipped to speak the truth and love on those topics to ourselves, to the body. Okay, I've said a lot here. We've got we to move quickly now. Um, let's move on from the process to God's pattern. God's pattern. God's grand pattern. That's your blank, actually. Um, so we're building ourselves up in love, but into what? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. You see, as we speak the truth in love, we now have the object. I, I talked about how um, th there are a lot of books on church growth, but what many of those books want to grow the church into isn't Jesus. There's some other vision in mind. Um, here, we measure our growth both negatively by not being children, not being unstable, not being unprotected, and positively by being more and more like Jesus. Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. You can say, is our church growing? It is if we're growing up more and more into the head into Christ. If people are more and more like Jesus, we are growing. If they aren't, we are not. So this growth is holistic. We're to grow up in every way. God intends to sanctify us in every area. The challenge for us can be that we've got three or four areas we want to grow in, and we've got three or four areas that we're quite happy with as they are right now. Thank you very much. This growth is going to be holistic. God will have all of us. And so we will be growing in every conceivable area. Because trust me, every conceivable area in our lives could be more like Jesus. And we're to grow up into him who is the head, into Christ. Now turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's drawing on some imagery that he's already laid out. And again, this is tied to Christ's resurrection and his exaltation. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read this, verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, only in this, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ has been raised from the dead and exalted and raised above every power and every name and every creature in heaven and on earth. And in that exalted position, he's been given his head to the church. And now the church responds in a worthy or fitting way by growing up into and corresponding to this head. I've made this point before that my head controls my body. And if my body isn't responding properly, something's wrong. I need physical therapy. I need medicine. I need surgery. When my, my arms and legs don't do what my brain tells them to do. Likewise, Christ has been exalted, raised from the dead, triumphed over all things, victorious, and God gives him his head over all things, and in particular to the church, his body. Christ wants his body to carry out his instructions, to order itself properly. That's what it means to walk in a worthy manner. So that's the goal, that we would carry out his will and his purposes on earth, that we would truly be his hands and his feet, his body, doing not our own will but his corresponding to imaging him just as a body should so that's god's grand pattern so the process how do we grow we speak the truth in love what are we growing into we're growing into more and more into the image of christ growing up into our head the body is going to fit the head how where, where does the power come from point c god's gracious power god's 
gracious power. We see that the head equips, directs, and empowers the body for growth. And again, what we're learning here is that everything in our Christian life comes from Christ and comes from his cross. The very gifts that we are using in the process and project of growth are given by the triumphant ascended Lord. He then gives gifted ministers to train and equip the saints to use their gifts. And then the very power itself to operate in those gifts comes from him as well. Into the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. From whom makes the body grow. Those, those are linked. The, the power to grow comes from Christ. The gifts come from him. The leaders come from him. And now the power to grow comes from him. Paul says something very similar in Colossians 2.19, saying this, holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So make no mistake, when we do this rightly, when we are speaking the truth and love to each other, and when the body is growing, that growth comes from God. Because we're using his word through the aid of his gifts under the oversight and under the, the development of his leaders. Now, with the power and the strength and the growth that comes from him, he gets the glory. We get the benefit. He gets the glory. God's gracious power. And then finally, point D, God's gifted parts. God's gifted parts. We've got the process, the pattern, the power, and now the parts. And, and this is the other point I want to emphasize. Because in America in particular, the church more and more has followed, in more and more cases, a business model, there's been a, a greater and greater move to the professionalization of the church and its leadership. And in businesses, you generally have the trained professionals doing all the work. And so the temptation in the church can be to have the three, four, five, six gifted, trained people, the staff, do all the work. Now, we've already seen in, in this section that the work of ministry is given to the body. Now, there, there are offices, elders, deacons, and, and they have a particular work, but it's a work of training and equipping. But the work of building up the body, that, that's all of ours. And what we see here, and this is why I love this passage, it's only going to happen when everyone's doing their part. The body will not grow when the five or six key people are hard at work only. The body will not grow when the most gifted and talented people are working hard only. Listen to what Paul says. The language is emphatic. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. Every joint, each part. This is, it's holistic and total or it's nothing. So, first point. Joined and held together by every joint. And here, this is bringing the whole section together, is a picture of unity, right? This is why Paul begins this section on walking in a worthy manner, emphasizing unity. You can't have each part and every joint at work in harmony if there's divisions and factions. There needs to be unity. So it's a picture of unity, right? The entire body has to be doing this. This is, again, why you, you and I have to embrace this. You can't sit back and say, well, speaking the truth in love, that's for other people. Or I spent my time doing that. Nope. This grand project only works when each part is doing its part. That unity, that cohesion of the body only takes place when every joint with which it is equipped holds it together. And each part is working together. So it's joined and held together by every joint. That's the unity. And that's why it's 
so important to maintain the unity. That's why you and I need to embrace and zealously pursue that unity. Because we're only going to grow when we're all doing this together. Also, each part is working properly. And, and here's an emphasis on the diversity. The diversity. Remember we saw that as well. So the first six verses focusing on unity in the body. But then as each gift is given differently to each and every one of us, there's a diversity in the body. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. And so the strength of the body is its diversity. I, I say this uh, I say this often in my conversations with people, especially when I talk to people who will sometimes um, be discouraged because they're not like everybody else. Amen. If the body were all toes or fingers or eyes, where would the body be? We need every joint and each part. And if you're tempted to think you're an unimportant part, an unnecessary part, that, that is a lie. That is not true. Believe and receive what God's word says. And God's word says here, the body only grows with each joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, we need each part and we need every joint. God has equipped the body with each joint, with every part. And they're all important and they're all necessary. And if you're part of this body, if you're a believer, you're necessary. You are of critical importance. That's, that's what this passage says. That's what God's word says. The diversity of the body is essential. And then we see that when we have that unity and that diversity, and then in that context, we are speaking the truth and love to each other. It makes the body grow. That is how we reach maturity. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And again, I'll just come back to the imagery, the medical imagery of a body. Um, I'm, I'm painfully aware of this as, as I watch my, my twin daughters in the NICU. Um, as we're waiting and observing the body do exactly that as they eat the nutrients are spread and they regulate their temperature and their blood sugar levels and they put on weight and everything is working well when the body and its systems are working in harmony and with one of my daughters um that that, that started to come into question they had to give antibiotics because everything wasn't working in harmony the body wasn't building itself up the, the body works when all the systems and all the parts are working properly, unified, and in diversity. Because we need immune systems, and we need kidneys, and we need lungs, and we need eyes and toes. But when all those parts are working properly together and in harmony, they're not fighting with each other, then you get growth. So Paul, borrowing on this imagery, he's used the image of a temple, a building being built up and constructed. He's using an, he's used an architectural image previously, and now he's using a, a, a physical body image. But we get this, don't we? Bodies grow when all the systems and all the parts are working properly. They're not fighting with each other, but there's an internal harmony. And then the body builds itself up and grows up. Now here... That means walking in unity, believing what God has said about our oneness so that even though we may not all look alike and we may have different backgrounds and we have different ages and we have different ethnicities and we have different um, tastes and preferences, we believe and therefore we act upon the glorious truth that we are made one in Christ. And so we're unified and we strive to maintain the unity of the faith and the bond of peace. And then we recognize that we're gifted individually with spiritual gifts of grace by the resurrected and ascended Lord. And we are equipped and, and trained in those gifts by the leadership that God's given. And then we turn around and we speak the truth and love to each other. We speak God's word with his heart to each other. And when we do that, 
When every part and every joint is doing its part, something amazing happens. The body builds itself up in love. That is why Christ gave himself up. I'll end where I began. On Resurrection Sunday, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He cleanses his bride with the word of God. We learn here, the bride has grown by speaking the truth in love. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Paul says that's why Christ died. It's not the only reason why he died, but it is a glorious reason. So as you celebrate Resurrection Sunday, as you cherish Christ in your heart, not just as the suffering sacrifice, but as the risen Lord, understand that he died and rose again so that you and I might do this in his flesh, he tore down the dividing wall so that we could be made one, so that we could be unified. And in his resurrection and in his ascension, he gave gifts to men. He gave you and he gave me spiritual gifts that we could be about this project. We live in a fitting and corresponding way to the reality of the resurrection of the Lord when we give ourselves wholly and fully to this grand project of speaking the truth and love to each other and building up the body of Christ in love. It's my prayer that the Lord by his grace would strengthen us to do just that and that we might be encouraged as we see that growth that comes when every joint and sinew is doing its part and the body builds itself up in love. God bless.